0: Welcome to another episode of my weird little podcast. Tonight's yay. hosts are uh Teresa, yay, yay. all the way Hello. in California. Tia, yeah. which is me here in Las Vegas. Uh, right. We have Pat once again here in Las Vegas on the ones and twos, and Josh, <laughs> our you. associate producer, somewhere out there. Yeah. Yay! So tonight's episode is, I don't even know, the one with murder? The one with, well, this is not going to be the only one with murder, but the first one with murder.
1: Yeah. We could say, uh, I mean, they're both Hollywood murders, aren't Mm -hmm. they? I mean, essentially-ish. Yeah the one with hollywood homicide done yeah yes.
0: um yeah uh i think you you're going to go first cuz your, yours happened before mine
1: okay chronologically yeah yeah
0: mine happens in the 80s yes
1: mine so. is, is earlier 1950s 60s yeah okay cool mm-hmm. All right. Well, let me just jump right into it. Yeah, yeah, don't Um, worry. so, (laughs) So tonight we're going to be taking a little investigation into Lana Turner. And was she in any way a murderer? Big question mark. Not, not exactly sure, but our story starts way before the murder. If you don't know who Lana Turner was, she was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood during the golden age of Hollywood. Um, She was uh, discovered. She is that famous Hollywood story that you sometimes Uh, hear about. I know I definitely heard about it um, when I was, you know, learning about the world of Hollywood, but you always hear about this one story where this one person is discovered and she's sitting at a soda shop in Hollywood. Well, that person was Lana Turner and she was actually only 16 years old at the time. She uh, was attending Hollywood High School and It is said uh, most often that she was discovered at the soda uh, shop named Schwab's, but it actually wasn't Schwab's. It was a place called the uh, Top Hat Cafe, which was also a a soda and malt shop. So Mm -hmm. just to, yeah, just to um, put the Schwab's rumor to rest, apparently it was the Top Hat Cafe. So Lana was discovered there, um, skipping school, of course, uh, but they didn't care because she was so striking. Uh, She was uh, wearing, famous at that time, I should say, for wearing sweaters, and the sweaters were very tight so they could show off her body. Um, And that's kind of how she became known at first, uh but she would soon kind of transition out of that that um, just just a sweater girl, uh, because she was very popular too on um, as as kind of almost a pinup model. Um, her picture was circulated all over the place, so I'm sure she was a poster on a lot of uh, people's walls. <laughs> but uh, she soon became known for more than that her, Her talent was definitely there, and she became known as kind of the femme fatale. Uh, She was known as also a sultry blonde, and she's probably most famous for the Postman Always Rings Twice and Peyton Place, which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Peyton Place. Um, So that's kind of just a little quick background on lana turner uh lana sorry oh that's okay
0: i wonder where the top hat used to be because it has to be close to hollywood high school
1: yeah it it would have to be you're right because they wouldn't want to i mean i assume if they didn't have any kind of vehicle yeah Yeah. they'd want to want it to be pretty close yeah that's true i I feel
0: like i've seen the sign or like the old sign is still up over one Hmm. of the buildings and I wanna say it's like where Hollywood Escape House or the Escape Hotel was or something. But, oh, you
1: think it was over there? Yeah. On yeah. off I mean, of Hollywood Boulevard? Yeah. I mean that would be walkable. That team. would be.
0: We yeah. used to go we used to go ditch and go to Denny's and that was pretty far. But we would still
1: walk <laughs> it. Okay. You know,
0: or someone would have a car never got discovered or anything I you know,
1: know that's not fair no yeah,
0: I also never got <laughs> caught so that's also another thing
1: no, yeah sorry, I mean
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy yeah yeah you know that's that's I guess you know it can be I guess the message is it can be advantageous sometimes if you're skipping <laughs> class because yeah. You could be discovered and and have a very successful uh Hollywood career, yeah, so kids you know take from that what you will <laughs> um, well, Lana, as I said, uh, was very striking, a uh, very beautiful woman, and of course, she was going to attract lots of attention from any eligible uh, bachelor of the day well. Eventually, she would catch the eye of a guy who wasn't exactly so stellar, but he must have been pretty hunky to her. I mean, you can look up his picture and decide for yourself, but uh, Lana got involved with a guy named Johnny Stampinato. and Johnny was a, an L.A. gangster, basically. He was part of the Los Angeles Mafia, so to speak. Uh, oh, and good looking. Yeah, he's good looking. Yeah. I mean, I thought so. I mean, I, you could see the attraction he, like, there for her. He's good looking, too. Yeah. I you know. Yeah. I mean, he looks like more like a clean cut, I guess, um, kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not dis- I'm not uh making a great description there, but but yeah, no, she, <laughs> she kind of didn't not that she didn't have a choice in the matter, but let's just say that Johnny was very, very persistent uh with when he pursued uh Lana Turner. He was almost to the point of aggression. It was on one of her movie sets um in Uh, in the 50s, and he would send her flowers, he would call the set, and at that time he went by the name John Steele. So she didn't even know that it was this guy, Johnny Stampinato. but Johnny had a taste for um, the young starlets. So she didn't even know how he got her her phone number. But this is apparently what he did. He just would pursue women and he found out their numbers and called them and gave them gifts and just kind of, you know, would be very, very, very persistent. Um, I read that he was interested in Ava Gardner at one point and um, that Frank Sinatra, had actually asked him to please leave Ava Gardner alone. Um, but I guess that didn't go over too well. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, he worked for Mickey Cohen, who was the, the crime boss of mm. the LA uh, underworld at the time. Um, so he kind of worked as his bodyguard and also his pimp essentially. Um, so Johnny Stompanato, um, in addition to being a mafioso, he was also an ex Marine. So he was really kind of, um, the stereotypical tough guy, you know, he, he really, that that's kind of what people would think of him as. And that's definitely how he acted in life as well. So Eventually, he did win Lana over, and they started dating, but their relationship was going to be completely turbulent, unfortunately. They just fought pretty often, and it, their relationship got um, into the physically abusive realm as well, um, but they would, you know, work through it somehow every time, make up. And next thing you know, they would be on a trip somewhere. You know, uh, they, Lana had money to spend, of course. So he kind of lived off of her at that time. And she paid for like his gambling debts and stuff. So um, he had it pretty good with her, but not really the other way around. Uh, Like I said, they, they weren't, Um, they weren't always going through some very good times. In fact, there was a time in Mm -hmm. September of 1957, and this was on the set of the movie that Lana was filming at the time in London, and it was called Another Time, Another Place. She was actually starring in that film with Sean Connery. And this was, you know, yeah, (laughs) this was, you know, pre-James Bond, Sean Connery, but he was still, you know, pretty well-respected actor, up-and-coming actor at the time. Um, But Johnny had heard a rumor, or perhaps he suspected himself, uh, because he was also very, uh, you can imagine, if he was abusive and he was um, aggressive, then he was also probably very uh, possessive of her, and he was. So, He heard a rumor that she might be having some kind of affair with Sean Connery or maybe he was just feeling anxious that he wasn't there and able to control the situation. So he actually flew to London and he burst on the set of the movie and he basically choked Lana Turner and he was threatening Sean Connery and probably everyone else on the set he was forced off the set by Sean Connery and then Lana Turner called Scotland Yard and she had Johnny Stompanato deported from the United Kingdom so that was quite dramatic and yeah, you would think wow. that <laughs> you would think after a a scene like that that you know, maybe things would be over because it was also reported that he had a gun with him. Uh, But you would think things would be over, but they weren't because, like I said, they would reconcile. And after that, they flew to Mexico and they went on a little vacation. And you can even, you know, there's a a picture of them with his arms around her and her looking happy. So, you know, it, it was not going to be the end of the relationship just yet. Um, So it would go on like this for a while. And then a year later, uh, in March 1958, Lana went to the Academy Awards. I said she was nominated for Peyton Place, uh, but she went without Johnny. Instead, she chose to take her daughter, Cheryl Crane, uh, to the ceremony with her. And Johnny was completely pissed about this. Uh, He was insulted. He was angry. And so that night, after uh, Lana returned home from the ceremony, he chose to assault her yet again. (laughs) So, yeah, it was just things were just getting worse and worse and worse. And things would kind kind of, you know basically come to a boiling point uh, just eight days later, uh, because on the night of April 4th, 1958, that was when uh, the murder would occur. And what happened was that that night, uh, and Cheryl, by the way, was Lana's only daughter. Uh, Her father's name was Stephen Crane, And he was an actor turned restaurateur. He had a big restaurant in L.A. at the time called Luau um, that was very successful. So that was her father, but um, wasn't with Lana Turner anymore, obviously. Um, But Cheryl happened to be um, at home that night. Uh, She was 14 years old. And what happened was that Lana said that that was the night she decided that she was going to end things with Johnny, finally, once and for good, She once and for all. She was just going to break things off, uh, make a, a new start. And they got into a huge altercation, of course, and started screaming at each other. And, um, of course, Cheryl overheard all of this going on. Now, Johnny was just in a rage at this point. Uh, he, Cheryl said that he was saying things like he was going to kill her, like kill Lana Turner, that he was going to kill the daughter. Um, and he was threatening um, other kinds of physical violence beyond just killing. He was saying he was going to to cut her face and basically just kind of all these different ways he could brutalize her. That's what he was going to do. And so he's he's screaming all these things. And Cheryl, of course, hears this. So they had been in Lana Turner's bedroom, the two of them, uh, Johnny and, and Lana. And so Cheryl hears all of this going on and she becomes terrified, of course. Uh, but the thing... One thing she can think, think to do is uh, she runs down to the kitchen and she grabs a butcher knife and then she runs back up the stairs and goes to the bedroom door. She opens the bedroom door and basically this is where things get kind of fuzzy on the details. But what happens, the end result, is that uh, the, Cheryl winds up stabbing. Johnny in the stomach with the butcher knife, and he basically dies from a single knife wound that caused massive internal bleeding. Now, I said that Cheryl stabbed him because that's what she said happened, and that's also what Lana's mother said happened, and to this day, Cheryl still maintains that that is the story, that that is what happened. Uh, I have a quote from her that I wanted to read. It was from 2012. And it's just a short little quote about her memory from what happened that night. She said, quote, There's a knife on the counter. I picked it up, ran back up the stairs. Her door suddenly flies open. I see Johnny coming toward me. He's got his hand up. I raised the knife and he walks right into it. And he looked at me and he said, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? So that is her. Yeah, that's her statement. What a badass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My favorite part of it is, is when she says that she raised the knife and he just walks right into it. So Did that, did that really happen? I
0: I don't know. That that just reminds me of that
1: line in Chicago where it's like, he ran Mm -hmm. into my knife. He ran Mm -hmm. into my knife 10 times. Exactly. That's the same thing that I thought of (laughs) Chicago immediately. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's what Cheryl, that's her story. That's what she says. She, she claimed that she was defending her mother against Johnny and uh she's, she also turned herself in the next day on April fifth, the next morning. And after that she was sent to juvenile hall, uh, because she confessed to the crime. So what happened after that was that um they didn't hold they didn't need to hold uh, a classic trial because she had already confessed. So uh on April eleventh uh, so just what? Uh, gosh, I can't do I can't even do basic math anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Days later, um, the they have a coroner's inquest and the coroner's inquest deemed the homicide as justifiable. Cheryl Crane was exonerated of any wrongdoing and she was released later that month. And then she was placed under uh, her grandmother's guardianship. So essentially, no one was charged for this. Uh, Well, I mean, Cheryl was charged with the crime, but she she was cleared of it. So it was kind of, you know, it was a a moot point at that at that point. Um, Excuse me. So you can imagine that the public response to the case uh, and even with, you know, some of the main players involved in the, in the immediate story, people were split over yeah. what really happened. Yeah. Um, the well, media. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, well, don't assault women. And then we won't have this problem. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's super dark to begin with. And then it just gets worse. Yeah. The media criticized Lana Turner for, uh, giving basically what they thought of as a grand performance during the inquest with her testimony, because she was on the stand giving her testimony for about an hour. So that's a pretty long time. Yeah. And I'm going to get to, I also have, um, a quote from her mom that I want to share, uh, about what happened, but, but yeah she was um she was very distraught um visibly um anxious she was on the verge of fainting every few seconds uh while she was you know delivering her testimony so that's why she was so heavily criticized apparently in the media um but i mean i'm sure you know this was a very traumatic event as well so you know i mean that's one way, my light went out. That's one way uh, to, to look at things. Hold on one second here. There we go. Um, Where was that? Uh, okay. So yeah, that, that essentially led to also a bunch of conspiracy theories that, still kind of persists to this day, over who really killed Johnny. Yeah. Uh, was, <laughs> was it Lana Turner and her daughter just took the blame for it? Uh, Cheryl obviously denies this, but, um, you know, there was also maybe a thought that Cheryl was jealous of her mother's relationship with Johnny Stompanato, that she herself might have been infatuated with him and that she was jealous. And so that's why she wound up killing him. But please, oh, that sounds like something a male news reporter made up. Exactly. It's not very <laughs> after doing the research that I did too. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like that, that theory holds any kind of weight whatsoever. Yeah. Um. So it, yeah, I'll get into a, more about that in a moment, but. But yeah there there's definitely conspiracy theories about there out there as to as to what happened. Um, so, let's see. more about Johnny Stampanato. Um, I told you he was a mobster, an ex-marine. He loved the Hollywood Starlets. Um, he was an affiliate gangster of Mickey Cohen, but he was also a physically abusive person and just not an all around great person. Um, after the um, the inquest, after the judgment came down with the inquest, there was a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed by Johnny's ex-wife. And she asked for uh 750, uh, sorry, seven. No, (laughs) basically over, it would be over $6 million today in damages. Uh, And that got settled out of court for $20,000 only. And that was back in May of 1962. So his family and his relatives didn't get much satisfaction or comfort from that. And um, they probably still think that there's more truth out there to what happened. But, um, you know, that's, that's what the what's gone down on record. Oh, here is the quote I have from Lana Turner. um, When she was in the inquest, she said, I was walking toward the bedroom door. And he was right behind me. And I opened it. And my daughter came in. I swear it was so fast. I I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I still never saw a blade. So that was back in 1958, part of her testimony. Um, they came together and they parted. Like, it's just, you know, I mean, the way that both she and her daughter choose to make certain statements is, is kind of strange, but they it's still make like, me-
0: uh it's also like not really taking responsibility mm-hmm. for the action. You mm-hmm. know? It very dismissive dismissive of it, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that
1: I can see why that would make
0: people feel uncomfortable, you know. Right.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. There was actually an article that was written one of the many articles that was written after the after the inquest happened, and they said, uh, if anyone is, you know, this isn't, this is like a paraphrase quote, but it said, basically, if anyone is the juvenile delinquent, it's Lana Turner. It's not her daughter. (laughs) So yeah, they were really characterizing her as a bad mother as well, on top of everything else. Um, Probably, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe calling her loose or something like that, or I'm not really sure. I mean, at this point she had had, um, she had had like five husbands already. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. By the time, by the time she would, um, she would pass on, she was married seven times. Lana Turner was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's in the Elizabeth Taylor leagues, I guess, (laughs) since she had gotten married so many times as well um but but that's you know that's essentially the way that things went down now Cheryl went on to have a very difficult adolescence you can imagine um when she was in the juvenile hall the juvenile center she broke out of it two times um and eventually she was. Yeah, (laughs) it was in (laughs) Silmar. Yeah, she was definitely. I mean, and the detention center is in Silmar, which is funny, because it's really not too terribly far from where I'm living right now. So (laughs) so now I'm trying to picture all that. But um, and her mom, of course, was in Beverly Hills. So yeah, every time she escaped, she escaped back to Hollywood. But then she had to go back. Um, yeah, she, things, you know, didn't, some things in her life weren't too good from that point on. She did manage to, um, to work for her father, uh, at his restaurant for a while. Um, but then she decided that she was going to, um, try her hand at modeling. Um, so she did that for a while. Um, and and then um, through the modeling, she met um, who the woman who would become her longtime partner, and now is her wife. Um, they actually uh, eventually married in 2014, but they have been together since uh, like the 70s. Um, oh wow! Yeah, her wife's name is Jocelyn Josh Leroy, and she was like I said, she met her when she was modeling. Um, and then she got in, Cheryl Crane got into real estate. So she was a real estate broker for a while. They lived in Hawaii then they lived in, um, San Francisco. Um, and so things, uh, things did get better, obviously when, once Jocelyn was in her life, but still Cheryl Crane went through a period where she herself said that she was, you know, had a, had a, a drug problem, and she had an addiction problem, um, and she actually had attempted suicide twice. So, yeah, uh, she wrote about it though, um, and that's that's the other part of it. She um, she became an author, so she wrote two memoirs, uh, tell all books essentially, about uh, you know everything that happened in 1988 the first one she wrote was called detour a hollywood story and then in 2008 she would write lana the memories the myths and the movie so that one focused a lot more on just her mother but the the first one she wrote in 1988 was where she gave um she talked a lot more about what happened with johnny stampanato And she said she, these were her allegations, but she, she said that um, he had sexually abused her. And she said that one of her other mother's uh, husbands, so one of her stepfathers had also sexually abused her when she was younger. So, you know, she went through these kind of situations and that could also be, you know, another reason why she might have wanted to take a knife and thrust it into yeah. Johnny Stompanato's stomach that night in 1958. Um, now, beyond the, the memoir books, she also, uh, as recently as 2014, she wrote um, fiction, mystery novels. So she's got three of those as well. In case anybody out there is interested in that, in 2011 she wrote one called "The Bad Always Die Twice," 2013 "Imitation of Death," and 2014 "The Dead and the Beautiful." Mm-hmm. And the, apparently the last two f- follow um, a, a real estate broker, which, <laughs> if you remember, was what I said she used to do. Yeah. So. I guess she was just drawing from inspiration of in her life in all kinds of ways. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully now, um, it seems like her life is, is pretty happy and she's living a good life. Um, but you know, I mean, she says that she, she did the crime and, and that's, that's how it's gone down in history. So, um, I don't know. I mean, who's to say what really happened? None yeah. of us were there, but yeah. <laughs> it does, I don't know. To me, it seems from everything I read that I would be inclined to believe her, that she, you know, this was just something that she did and she's taking complete ownership for it. And, yeah. you know, perhaps perhaps the fact that she didn't, you know, have to go to – um adult jail, I guess, uh, yeah. you know, she kind of got cleared of everything. I don't know kind of what that says, but you know, uh, she's, she's lucky obviously that she was a minor and that she was, you know, Hollywood elite, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because she had the best lawyers and it did say, you know, that her mother, after this happened, she phoned the, you know, her lawyer right away. And it was, uh, a lawyer that would get all Hollywood peoples out of any kind of trouble, like he apparently got Errol Flynn uh off of uh you know whatever kind of rape charges that he was under, so he got him off, and so that was the same lawyer that she contacted, so so yeah, it was um it's still still kind of a little bit of a mystery, but I think it might not be at the same time. It might be pretty straightforward and maybe people want to see more into it than, than it is. I don't know. What do you think after hearing all of that? Know. Yeah.
0: Um. I mean, it's hard to say. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, they're, the way they responded is just is definitely very eerie of It's like almost as if they're, blaming i mean it it is johnny's fault like yeah he he sounds like a horrible person yeah and uh but it just sounds like well you know it was just a thing that happened you know and that they that just one of those things you know yeah basically it's it (laughs) seems like they're very dismissive dismissive of it but it's almost like is that what the lawyer told them to say Right. Like, were they coached? But, I mean, the fact that their testimonies or their stories have not really ever changed. Yeah, you know, they, they've, they've
1: been corroborated each other's story. And, yeah, yeah. No, that would lend credibility to it. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess who knows? I know. That's true. What what you said is true, though, about especially about the lawyer. I forgot because not only did she call him, but he did also come over that night and yeah he he absolutely would have coached them or talked to them and and yeah and and Cheryl Crane didn't release you know her she didn't say that she had done it until the next morning so mm-hmm. yeah at that point you know many decisions could have been made but yeah. you know she still asserts no i was defending my mother it was in self defense so that that is what happened but um that is essentially the whole story so yeah yeah well awesome
0: so um listening to your story I didn't realize uh how similar my story was so when I pick these these are like months and months ago I picked them and I could possibly be drunk. I could possibly be high when I'm putting the schedule together. Uh, I probably have these stories fresh in my mind. But by the time we get to the episode, I have clearly forgotten every single thing about the story. And so uh, like two weeks ago when I was like, oh, I see you again. I'm doing Dorothy Stratton. And you're like, yeah, she's a former Playboy model. And I was like, is she <laughs> like in my head, like, okay. I mean, she must've had something happen for me to like write this down. I thought that this was, so there's a former Playboy model that died in her home and she was found like mummified oh my uh, God. because of the heat and she had no air conditioning in her home. And I thought it was that story. Um, which I might get into at some point But this story with Dorothy Stratton Is actually very similar To the Lana Turner story um, Okay So I Obviously that's why I picked it Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, yeah. Right Whereas, You know but yeah. uh, <laughs> Anyways So <laughs> this I did a lot of research in this one And I could have done more but at one point today, I was just like, I can't write anymore. I just cannot write anymore <laughs> or watch another documentary on this. Like, there's so much. Yeah. So I'm just going to go on the tip of the iceberg with this story. I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> so first off, um, pardon me. I'm just burping. It's fine. Uh <laughs> why i'll never be a playboy model uh Uh, so so anyways um i got my information from wikipedia uh hollywood homicide abc's news death of a playmate i also watched the movie they all laughed which is a movie that she is in Mm. uh, and a movie that was very roughly based on her story called death of a centerfold which actually starred jamie lee curtis oh mm. it was okay (laughs) it was all right uh very baby jamie lee curtis which was pretty cool to (laughs) um there also was a documentary i think it's on discovery plus right now wait Mm. pat what was it on that we watched about the chippendales
1: um yeah i think that i think there was no wait maybe that was hbo
0: Anyways, there's a Chippendale's documentary that's out right now. Oh, shit. I, let me look this up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Discovery Plus because I'm all about Discovery Plus right now. Get Discovery Plus, guys. Also, Discovery Plus, uh, please uh, sponsor me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a mini series on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? Curse of the Chippendales. Yes. I believe it is on, no, it is on Discovery Plus. Huh, I should have known that. Get <laughs> Discovery Plus, guys. It's really good. And I'm not just saying that because my boss's shows are on that. <laughs> Alluding to who I work for right now. I'm going to
1: keep the mystery. Keep That's the mystery. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyways. Uh, I had watched that, and then Jason Horton, who does the Jason Horton I should have wrote this down Horton, yes, Jason Horton he does a podcast called Ghost Town and he has his own little YouTube thing uh, where he kind of talked about some of the CD side of the Chippendales, so, but I'm already spoiling some of this by even mentioning that. So let's just get <laughs> into the story. So Dorothy Stratton, or also AKA Dorothy, Ro- Dorothy Ruth Hoogestratton, Ho- Ah, uh, I'm so bad with names. Hoogestratton uh, was born February 28th, 1960 to Simon and Nellie Hoogestratton, who emigrated from the Netherlands to Vancouver. Can I just say people from the Netherlands are so beautiful like (laughs) yeah like
1: like, their features and all that
0: yeah they're all gorgeous so this is (laughs) she's already got the good genes she's yeah (laughs) so she also has a brother Arthur sister Louise but I'll get into that a little bit later so her father left the family when Dorothy was three years old and her mother had to work as a housekeeper And she became pregnant by one of her employers with her sister, Louise. And the mother later worked in a cafeteria. So in high school, Dorothy worked at the local Dairy Queen to help support the family. In 1977, when Dorothy was 17 years old, a man driving a black Corvette, wearing a mink coat with a mustache and had a diamond star of David chain. Around his neck came into the Dairy Queen. Can I just say that that sounds so 1977? <laughs> it and really that, does. And that this sounds like a cartoon predator that like would be on a dare commercial walking <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> oh, yeah, meat coat and a mustache. Yeah, that's the guy.
1: Um, you had to so, have a mustache in the 70s. Yeah, yeah I think, that's, true, anyway. that's true. I think it was a requirement. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So this man who walks in is
0: 26-year-old Paul Snyder. So a little bit about Paul Snyder. Paul Snyder was from Vancouver. He quit school in the seventh grade after his parents split up, and he worked as a le- leather cut- cutter as a leather cutter in his dad's sweatshop. But he always wanted to do something more and be more. Uh, and he was looking for like, always looking for like the next best thing. Like, how can I use a situation to benefit me? That is definitely this person. So he became a promoter for quote unquote, what he says, whatever he could find to promise. So he would promote go-go dancers, clubs, uh, car, automobile shops. Like he would, he just kind of talk the talk, you know? Uh, and he was also known as the Jewish pimp, because he would—he was also a pimp for a while. Um, oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Maybe not for a while. This is kind of like his whole thing. Yeah. You know? So, he starts dating Dorothy, uh, and he even took her to her prom, which is, I guess, okay back then, that a 26-year-old would take a girl to the prom whoa yeah yeah yeah. I don't don't know if that's allowed (laughs) I mean I took so my boyfriend had already graduated (laughs) from high school when I took him to the prom which now looking back that's probably why he was so awkward the whole night like that is weird (laughs) I guess like he acted like he didn't want to be there but I was like this is my prom I came to your prom right um (laughs) I think I had to get permission for him to do that because he was an outsider and he didn't go to the school. So I think I had permission for that, but I can't remember. (laughs) So anyways, after he takes her to prom, he goes and takes her to get professional photos done. And these professional photos, they look like normal, like couple. They look kind of like prom photos or like headshots. He takes her to go get those done. But okay. he does eventually convince her to do a more risky photo shoot, and then eventually do photo nude photos. Oh, okay. and uh, he's trying to get her to submit for Playboy, and she couldn't submit for Playboy because she wasn't quite nineteen years old yet. And nineteen is the adult age in uh, in British Columbia. They're okay. they're in Canada, so
1: oh, okay. So he's
0: technically underage uh, at eighteen. Mm. And so she had to get her mother to write permission for her to submit to Playboy. Oh, wow. Because it's 1977 and that's okay, I guess. And like, also,
1: can you imagine, I mean, I don't know about you, Tia, but I can't imagine asking my mother to yeah. help, not mine, to help me submit to Playboy. Yeah. You know, she would, I mean, now. I nowadays, couldn't even wear, are, I, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Nowadays, if you're underage, like, and you're sell- you send or even mail or text nude photos of yourself, like, that, you're considered a sex offender. Right, right.
1: You know? I mean, but my I mom didn't that. want me to wear a tank top. She definitely wasn't going to let me submit anything to Playboy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Wow. So, uh,
0: so... She, Playboy loves her because, I mean, if you see a picture of Dorothy Stratton, she is straight up ethereal, gorgeous.
1: She is very beautiful, yeah.
0: Yeah, so they accept her. They invite her to come to L.A. So her and Paul both, or no, she goes to L.A. And I think Paul joins her later. She lives at the Playboy Mansion for a while. uh, And she is chosen... She's chosen as a finalist for the 25th anniversary Great Playmate Hunt. But she doesn't become Playmate of the Year, but she does become Miss August in 1979.
1: So things are like going good for her pretty quickly, you know? I was born. Oh my goodness. Sorry, I just felt a connection. That might sound cheesy to some, but no, there's a connection there somewhere. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So, in
0: June of 1979, she marries Paul. And Um, I feel like she had this, like, obligation to. He also is, like, sounds like he's a very manipulative predator. And, you know, probably emotionally manipulated her into doing all this. But, I mean, he did get her a lot of these jobs and promoted her. And she otherwise would not have left Vancouver and the Dairy Queen. So, yeah, it's just like so similar to your story of being discovered. Um, yeah, although this guy's a total they're... sleaze bag. Yeah, with <laughs> yeah. his meat coat and his mustache.
1: Yeah, oh my goodness. With, with Lana Turner, they were, they were looking, but they weren't, you know, doing more than looking. Apparently, hopefully, so yeah. <laughs>
0: So she ends up uh, doing some spots on TV, she does a few roles on uh, shows like Buck Rogers and Fantasy Island. She has a couple small roles in films like Americathon and Skate Town USA. And then she gets a lead role in an exploitation film called Autumn Born. Uh, and in 1980, she, uh, beginning of 1980, she actually shoots her Playmate of the Year photos, and she films and stars in a movie called Galaxina, which is all takes place in Southern California. She does all of this. She's still in LA at this point. So at this point, Paul Schneider is working as her chauffeur, her manager, and her acting coach. So he is benefiting full time off of Dorothy Stratton, has no real job of his own at this point although I'll get into a little bit later, he did have his own business adve- like endeavors on the side. Um, so he did make his own money here and there, but mostly he was riding on the coattails of Dorothy Stratton. Oh, she also changed her name from Hoog Stratton to Stratton. Yeah. Which I don't blame her.
1: No, um, that's yeah
0: a little easier not, to follow. Not saying like if you're... Last name is Hoogstrat and that it's bad. It's just not very glamorous. (laughs) My last name's Bean. So I sound like I'm a pixie from, yeah. Like you'll you'll turn up a toadstool and, oh, I found, look at, I found this Tia Bean under the toadstool, you know? Yes. I feel like I'm like that little worm in the labyrinth. You know. Oh my god! I, I love know. the word TFP. Um, sorry. Okay,
1: <laughs> that <was the> <laughs> Um, ah, the word. yeah.
0: No, it's okay. It's, it, it is what it is. You know, <gasps> no offense, Pat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So, uh, at this point, though, so people on the set of Galaxina they start to notice that there is actually tension between the couple. And I think like Dorothy was really starting to just be sick of the fact that Paul dictated everything in her life. Like he really told her what she could and couldn't do. Uh, People on the set said that he, he would constantly criticize her all the time. And Uh it was just very uncomfortable. Also, like, he's, like, schlepping around these sets, you know? He's not in the movie. He's just her guy, you know? Right. And that must have been very awkward.
1: Oh, no. So, wow.
0: later, in 1979, she's cast in a film called They All Laughed, which is to be directed by Peter Bo- Bodanovich. Yes. So, uh, it films for five weeks in New York, It is a closed set so Paul is not invited out there and he does not like this at all but I mean what can you do that's the rule so uh, apparently he tried to call Dorothy a lot during that time and had a, a lot of difficulties getting a hold of her but we'll we'll get back to that so a little about Peter Bodanovich, Bodanovich,
1: God, names. I know. It's another, it's another one of those Eastern European names.
0: So Peter B. Uh, had <laughs> just directed The Last Picture Show starring 20-year-old Sybil Shepard, mm-hmm. who he dated while filming. He even left his wife to date her. So he divorced his wife to date a 21-year-old. Um, And he's like in his mid-30s at this time. Uh, So while filming, they all laughed. It wasn't long before Dorothy moved into Peter Bogdanovich's suite and they started dating. So she's 20 years old at this time. Uh, So Peter Bogdanovich had met Dorothy Mm -hmm. at uh, the Playboy Mansion because he used to hang out there a lot. And he met her there and he insisted that she be in his movie. Mm -hmm. So, which I watched that movie today and I wasn't a huge fan of it. It it felt like he was making a movie to make excuses for having, like, an affair or, like, Mm -hmm. falling in love with a younger woman. Mm
1: -hmm. It was
0: also very hard to follow and was a lot it was supposed to be a comedy, but it seemed way serious for some reason. But but also I'll I'll get into why it may have been awkward in this movie. I'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. So anyway, so uh Paul is not able to get a hold of Dorothy on the phone while she's filming and he's pissed about it. So in April uh Dorothy Stratton briefly returns to California to prepare for her upcoming introduction as Playmate of the Year. Yay! (laughs) She does finally make it. Uh, And they're going to do a promotional tour throughout Canada. So uh, with several months of filming left in New York, this was the last time that she would be living with Paul Snyder
1: in their Mm -hmm. L.A. home.
0: So she at this point is going to move out from living with him because she's going to go film for many many months in New York. So he ends up getting like roommates, um, but I'll get into that too a little bit later. So, uh, so things are still looking really up for uh, Dorothy, but now she's having an affair with this Peter Bodanovich, and Paul Snyder is super suspicious like he can kind of tell what's going on but mm-hmm. i mean he must have been threatened because peter Bodanovich is like this big time director and he's just like he's got yeah. nothing without dorothy
1: right like,
0: well, i would he say nothing well yes nothing, not <laughs> at this point because his, his other business endeavor kind of did not pan out which, um, well, for him, it panned out, but not for him. But I'll yeah, I'm gonna stop saying I'll get into that because it's just okay. a there's so much. Okay, <laughs> so on April 30th of uh, 1979, she is uh, presented with uh, she's presented as Playmate of the Year to the assembled press at the Playboy Mansion. They have this lunch. And uh, she is awarded money and a car, a Jaguar, and she gets all of these prizes. Um, and later that night, she's interviewed by Johnny Carson on the tonight show. So she's like at her peak at this point. Uh, it's going really great for her. So the next day she starts her promotional tour of Canada and The first weekend of the promotional tour, they don't have really much for her to do. So she decides that she's going to fly to New York and surprise Peter Bodanovich. And this is where Paul Snyder ends up calling uh, on the phone. And I think he called Peter Bodanovich because he was suspicious and Dorothy Stratton picked up the phone. So Mm -hmm. he now knows that she's there with him at his place in New York. Mm -hmm. And they get into a fight um. So, uh, Dorothy Stratton at one point she writes to Peter asking for more financial freedom. Uh, they fight over the phone while she's in New York, and so the tour is set to end in Vancouver. She's supposed to end her Canadian tour in her hometown in Vancouver, and it's supposed to be this big whole thing. And then she's supposed to go on like a vacation and rest well in her hometown, but. Paul Schneider meets her out there and ends up making her do promotional work for the clubs of his friends by making appearances at their clubs uh, throughout Van- Vancouver. So he just shows up and makes her work for him, and he pockets all of that money from that promotional work. Wow. So Snyder goes back to LA. Dorothy goes to New York to film. Uh, to do a few more months on the film. And in late June, or sorry, a few more weeks. In late June, a few weeks after their wedding anniversary, Paul Snyder receives a letter from Dorothy saying that they are now separated and she is cutting him off financially. Oh, Now, this does not go well with Paul.
1: Yeah. Because
0: without her, his citi- his citizenship is in jeopardy. Because Uh he's not a U.S. citizen. He does not have a work visa like Dorothy does to work Mm -hmm. in the U.S. because he's not the one working. She's working and he's getting her money, basically. Yeah. So Paul Snyder empties the couple's joint bank account. He has an affair with an ex-girlfriend. And he hires a private uh, investigator to expose Dorothy's affair. Uh He also starts selling off Dorothy's Playmate of the Year prizes for quick cash. Most notably, he sells her Jaguar. So he's a piece of a lot of things. (laughs) He's a big piece of, you know,
1: like what a sleaze, you know? Well, yeah. Seems like, you know, he had a good thing going for himself there. Uh, Yeah,
0: but it's like she's young like she's not gonna be with
1: you forever. You
0: can't trap a butterfly, you know, like you gotta let it fly and know that, you know, that's whatever. So also Paul (laughs) Snyder gets this roommate. uh, What is her name? Sorry, Patty Lerman. Uh, And he tries to make her Playboy model, but Playboy doesn't accept her. And uh, there's also, like, this point where he tries to go to the Midsummer Night's Dream party that Playboy has every year, Mm -hmm. and they won't let him in because he's not invited, you know, and he's not with Dorothy Stratton anymore. So he starts to see things crumbling, Mm -hmm. and his, like, cash cow, I hate that word, but it's just not working out, you know? Yeah. And he, yeah. So... Uh, on Wednesday, July 30th, principal photography for They All Laughed ended, and Dorothy returns to Los Angeles after spending 10 days in England with Peter Bodanovich. Uh, Dorothy had an apartment in Beverly Hills, but she had quietly actually moved in to Bodanovich's mansion in Bel Air. So on August 9th, Paul Snyder and his private detector to protect. Sorry. On August 9th, Paul Snyder and his private detective went to a gun store, but with the intentions to buy a gun, but they wouldn't sell a gun to Paul Snyder because he wasn't a US citizen. He tries to convince his private detective to buy one for him, but the private detective is like, no, (laughs) like, (laughs) this is bad, you know? Um, So he wouldn't buy this gun. So uh, on August 13th, uh, Dorothy's two-year anniversary of arriving in LA in L.A. Uh, on this day. Some of Snyder's friends recall him making comments about buying a shotgun from a private seller and making dark jokes about former Playmate Claudia Jennings, who had actually recently had just died. Uh, I believe she died in a car crash, but he was making dark jokes about a Playboy Bunny that had died. Yeah. You know, so or a playmate, sorry. Bunnies are different. The yeah.
1: Right. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah. So the morning of August 14th, 1980, Dorothy Stratton had a meeting with her business manager to discuss the amount of property settlement that she would offer to her husband. And uh she would offer to her husband um that afternoon. Um Her manager told her to have a lawyer hand off the remaining amount, but uh, Dorothy insisted that it would be better coming from her directly. So she goes to Paul Snyder's apartment with, I believe $1,100 is what she had in hand. So August 14th, 1980, Patty Lerman, who is Paul Schneider's roommate, and her new his new pet project that he's trying to promote her to get into Playboy. Uh, she could not get a hold of Paul on the phone. Uh, she was waiting for him on Venice Beach. He had promised to go roller skating with her. So she called up a friend. I think it was also his other roommate who was this person uh, to say, like, "Have you been able? Have you talked to Paul?" And this friend was like. No, I haven't talked to Paul either. They're not able to get a hold of Paul. So they're worried and they go back to the home that they share uh, around 8 p.m. and with Paul's other roommates. So his two roommates come home and they see Dorothy's car parked out front and they knock on Paul's door, but there's no answer. So they don't know what's going on. They, I guess, they just assume that he was talking to Dorothy in there or like something, you know. They were having a private discussion. So they go into the living room and they watch TV for a couple hours. And it's around 11 p.m. when Patty Lerman and the roommate uh, finally open up the door and they find Paul's body on the floor and Dorothy's body on the bed. Uh, They were naked and appeared both to be shot in the head. Dorothy's hand was missing fingers like she was holding up her hand to block the shot.
1: Oh, God.
0: They eventually, the investigators eventually find a shotgun underneath Paul, but it's unusual because if a person had shot themselves in the head, like he's laying on the shotgun, but if they had shot themselves in the head, they would be propelled in the other direction. So there's a couple suspects in this, but basically eventually it's ruled a murder-suicide. But the first suspect is Peter Bodonovich, who was at his Bel Air home all day and was ruled out as a suspect because apparently if you just say I was at my mansion all day, then I guess you're fine. Um <laughs> I don't really think Peter Bodonovich did it, but also yeah. here's some dirt on Peter, okay? Let's just yeah. let's get into it, okay? <laughs> so Peter Bodonovich after Dorothy Stratton's um death, he gives up on making movies for a time and focuses all of his attention on Nellie and Louise Stratton, so her mom and her little sister Louise. Uh, In 1984, Bodanovich writes a book called The Killing of the Unicorn, which is about Dorothy Stratton. And the year after this, a Dorothy's mother files a lawsuit against Hugh Hefner because Hugh Hefner had come out with some statements that uh, he made false, and I'm gonna say they've been deemed false by the lawsuit. But he made false statements, allegations that Bodanovich had tried to seduce Louise Stratton. Uh, Louise Hoogstratten, I'm sorry, when she was 13 years old and was sexually involved with her at 16. The case is eventually dropped, and Hugh Hefner ends up like retracting his statement or whatever. Um, but um, in uh, 1989, O'Donovich marries 20 year old Louise Hoogstratten when he is 49 years old. So, huh. (laughs) Let's just think about that one, you know? uh, And they're married for some time. They're married till like 2016. You know, they're married for some time. They eventually separate. Also, the way Peter Bodanovich talks about Dorothy Stratton Is a little like disturbing. So this is a quote of his. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if I can ever love as totally and completely as I loved Dorothy, but they were dating for less than a year, Mm. less than a year they were dating. And he can't love anyone else as much as her. And then ends up marrying her little sister who he met when she was 13. And he was like in his thirties, like, That's. (laughs) that's i don't
1: know so <laughs> i don't know yeah,
0: how i feel about that
1: we're entering some some creepy territory there yeah, yeah. so yeah,
0: another suspect but this had not come out till years and years and years later when people started to kind of connect the chippendales to this murder mm. so So one business endeavor that uh, Paul Schneider had gotten into and helped create was a little nightclub called Chippendales. Really? Yes. (laughs) So he actually basically copied the idea of Playboy and made a male version of this down to the fact that they had bow ties and cuffs.
1: No way.
0: It's rumored that that he actually took Dorothy Stratton's bow tie and cuffs and put them on a male. And then that became like their costume.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: um, Paul Schneider gets into business with a man named Steve Banerjee. So Steve Banerjee was also known, uh, his his real name's Soman uh, Banerjee. He's from Bombay, India. Uh, after op- operating a mobile gas station and a failed backgammon club, he bought failed club Destiny 2 and turned that club into a female mud wrestling show.
1: What? But in,
0: yeah, in in 1979, Banerjee par- partnered with Paul Snyder to develop a show for a female audience, and this is where Chippendales is born. Uh <laughs> But Banerjee would later drop Paul Snyder to develop a more theatrical show with TV producer Nick Denoya. So Nick Denoya was a producer for kids television. And he actually was really great for Chippendale's. <laughs> um he made it more of like this stage theatrical production and he brought it to New York and he brought it to a few other cities oh. and made it pretty much what it is today as being a globally recognized um I don't know what is it thing I don't know What's <laughs>
1: A magic mic
0: hour? I don't the know. franchise that it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Fran- franchise franchise, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or, or just I mean just globally, yeah, recognized. Like you mentioned Chipadales, everybody knows what you're talking about. You know, no one yeah. no one no one's thinking about Disney. <laughs> yeah. Or furniture, which is what that's, the name is after. That's right, um, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So Steve Banerjee Claims that he owns Chippendale, but Paul Snyder also claims that it was his idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Banerjee is a dangerous person. He actually attempted to burn down com- competing uh, clubs. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, da, 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 da. so uh, Steve Banerjee actually has an alibi for the night of the murder, that he was at the Chippendales Club the whole time, and there was also no evidence to link him. However, Steve Banerjee was later charged with having enlisted the aid of Ray, uh, Ray Cohen, a former Palm Springs police officer and lounge room entertainer in 1987, to carry out a plot to kill show producer Nick DeNoya. Uh, along with, later in 1990 and 91, a plot to kill former Chippendales dancer and choreographer Michael Fullington, and two other ex-Chippendale dancers who Banerjee felt were in competition he was in competition with. He actually made homemade cyanide and tried to kill these people. Oh, wow. Um, I think he did actually kill them man, I should have done better research on this. Uh, anyways. Uh, yeah, I should have done. Uh, I just always get to this point where like I'm telling the story and I'm like, oh shit. That's the point.
1: Yeah, you know.
0: Let me look this up.
1: <laughs>
0: Real quick.
1: Um,
0: um, no. Oh, no. Sorry. I probably have it right here. Okay, so, oh, okay, no, he attempted to murder them, but it didn't go through, so uh, he felt that uh, that they were in competition with the Chippendales franchise, so he eventually pled guilty to attempted arson, racketeering, and murder for hire. He enters into a plea deal that would lead to 26 years in prison and loss of his share in Chippendales. Uh, But, however, on October 23rd, 1994, hours before he was to be sentenced, he was found dead in his cell... In his cell... He was found dead in his cell uh, hanging from a noose. He had committed suicide. Ooh. So, that's just another shady, weird, creepy tie-in to this... That story. Yeah. So, most people have determined that it was a very just very sad murder-suicide um and it's very sad she was only 20 years old so i'm gonna end this with on a little somber note uh dorothy stratton her headstone which was picked out by peter banerjee uh reads uh if people if people bring so much courage to this world The world has to kill them to break them, so of course it kills them. It kills the very good and very gentle and the very brave, impartially. Mm -hmm. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. (laughs) This is a quote from Ernest Hemingway uh, from his Farewell to Arms. Three years later, Muriel Hemingway would play Dorothy Stratton in Bob Fosse's movie Star 80, which I thought was very fitting and sentimental. Yeah. But that yeah. is the very sad and complex story of Dorothy Stratton. Yeah, right. That's Yeah. Well, so... I can't believe you had that tying in with all Chip and Dale's thing, too. That's insane. There was there's it's just so much like as i was like i know i didn't talk for that long but that took me a long time just to get all of that information mm-hmm. i because there was just so much and you know, i was just like <sighs> watching interviews of peter bodanovich and i'm like I'm just, he makes me so angry. I'm like, how are you so in love with this person? You only knew for so long. You didn't even know them at their full maturity. Like, you knew them when they were still figuring out who they were. But it's just very predatory vibes. And just everybody wanted something from her. And they just preyed on her innocence. And it was just sad story all around, you yeah. know. Yeah. And who knows, like, Paul Schneider could be a victim in this, although he was not a good person. Like, it's very possible that uh, Banerjee hired a hitman to take out Paul Schneider and Dorothy got in the way. Um, You know, not saying Peter Bodanovich had anything to do with it because he probably wouldn't have wanted to kill Dorothy, but I don't know. Him marrying the – marrying – her younger sister is just like a creep. To me, it seems like a very creepy way that he's dealing with the trauma. Yeah. And yeah. yes, her as that's well, weird. you know, Yeah, it's very common for like the little sister to look up to the older, like the younger sibling to want something that the older sibling has. And maybe even have crushes on like their boyfriends or husbands or things like that. That's very common. So like I'm not blaming her. She's only 20 when she married him, and yeah, they stayed together for a long time. But I don't know. It's just like made me very angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Doing the research for this. Mm-hmm. So moving forward in our next season, I'm gonna try to pick a little more happy stories. You know, <laughs> although the weird stories aren't ne- aren't ever really happy, but. I'll try to go on a much lighter <laughs> note. Yeah. Uh, on that. You know. So, I know what you mean. But, but Curse of the Chippendales, that's like a whole nother rabbit hole to go in with. It's just very, very interesting, seedy nightclubs of the 1970s, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think in this story, too, the only good person is Hugh Hefner because when you watch interviews of him talking about Dorothy Stratton, he's just like, yeah, she had these creepy guys around her all the time. And Paul Schneider, he he's a bad person and he was just like disgusting weirdo that hung around here and he was unwelcome, you know. Mm. And when he wasn't with Dorothy anymore, there was no reason for her for him to be around, and yeah, Hugh Hefner talks mad shit about Peter and Paul, uh, so in this situation, like, watching his interviews, I was like, yeah, yeah, they're weird, yeah, Hugh Hefner, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, at least at least he was employing them, he wasn't just taking their money, <laughs> you know, right, like, Hugh, Hugh Hefner, I have... Especially, like, uh, hearing Holly Madison's, you know, her new YouTube show and her talking about Girls Next Door and being his girlfriend, you know, Mm -hmm. and how he was emotionally manipulative of her, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, I have mixed feelings about him. I think he had a decent business model to begin with. But later in his years, he became very emotionally manipulative of these women and insecure, you know, Mm -hmm. and projected a lot of that on the girlfriends in the 90s, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so this was like early Hugh Hefner when he was like, more of like, this is my business, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, and. Yeah, I could see why seeing Paul would definitely creep him out. And yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, Paul's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like, he's a wolf in a sleazy mink coat.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah. He doesn't so, hide the fact, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, anyways, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> In the uh, movie, the guy that played him was super sleazy. I love that. Yeah. With uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. wow. He was. He was very abusive. I don't think they really captured how naive uh, Dorothy Stratton was. And, like, not saying Jamie Lee Curtis is not a good actress, but she she was just too strong, you know, in it. She's just too strong of a person, and
1: yeah. and that's not really who the who no. he was, like in that aspect. Yeah, yeah. like she's a she's a, um, yeah, I get what you're saying, a stronger, yeah. like a feistier female or something. Yeah,
0: I guess that makes sense. Yeah, in I in that, that way. Hmm. hmm. I don't know. It just made me so mad because, like, I don't know. I was like looking back on myself too. Like, there were many times. When I was young, being pressured into doing things I didn't want to do, mm-hmm. you know, by men, by people in general. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it just made me very mad, you know, thinking about it. Later on in my life, I looked back at that time and it I was just so I'm so angry still that like I mm-hmm. let people take advantage of me, you know, mm-hmm. because I was naive. You know, yeah. and it's definitely turned me into a hard, bitter person. But I—that's mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> you know, that's fine.
1: It um, builds character. That's yeah. what they say anyway. Yeah. Side eye, anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wish I could Wish I could capture Pat's face right now. It's like, no, you're not bitter. <laughs> Oh uh, my video's going out. Oh, man. Oh, shit. I'm going through a tunnel. I'm going through a tunnel right now. Oh, okay. Well since we've lost Pat, let's end this <laughs> podcast Uh-oh. here. So That was uh, a good one. Oh also I was thinking we should entitle this one The One with Sleaze Balls, maybe? The, the one, one with Sleazy The one with Sleaze Balls. The one with Balls. Okay. <laughs> Sleeze
1: Okay. Yeah, because that's pretty
0: accurate. Yeah, yeah. That,
1: that, that makes sense. Although yeah.
0: sleazeball sounds like to me, it sounds like like a fuzzy little animal. You know, <laughs> if I have a pet bunny, we gotta name it sleaze, ball. sleaze hey you sleazeball <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fucking hilarious. Yeah, I'm down. I'm totally oh down. my goodness. <laughs> oh man. Well, Jill from work is going to be so mad. She's like obsessed with bunnies. Yeah, right, she's yeah really she's, she wouldn't be happy about that. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe she won't hear this episode. Anyways, on that note, <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, this has been Hol- no, it has not been Hollywood Haunted. Oh, uh, yes, you did that on the last one too. I did that that's on last one. Okay, edit that part up. So, on that note, this has been My Weird Little Podcast. Please follow us on Facebook at My Weird Little Podcast or on Instagram at My Weird Little Podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. We are on all the podcasts. Please email Everywhere us with podcast. any suggestions for weird stories you want to hear in the future at myweirdlittlepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. All right. Stay weird. Stay weird. Don't do
1: drugs. Do drugs.